This week on the Backtable Podcast. As long as our health systems try to take an active role in ensuring that their workforce has satisfaction, that physicians are able to do a good job without getting burned out while still keeping what the patient wants as a central focus, I think that we'll be able to iron out a lot of these pain points and hopefully create efficiency and value and optimize outcomes ourselves to some degree. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today. We have CJ Stimson and Richika Talwar from Vanderbilt University. CJ, Richika, how are you all doing today? Doing well. How are you? Doing great. Great. I'm pumped. I heard CJ give a talk as a part of the SUO, YUO webinar series. I think it was called Market Dynamics in Urology, which to me is kind of like when I ask people what they do and they say consulting, it meant close to nothing. But it was a awesome, awesome kind of mind-blowing talk and something I think that anybody in medicine really ought to at least be aware of. Maybe I'm the only one who wasn't aware of it. So maybe we could just kick off with CJ, you know, at a, at a high level when we're talking about the future of medicine, market dynamics in urology, big box coming for healthcare, kind of what are we talking about? When we talk about where healthcare is going, what I see right now is a fight over who's going to control the patient. I think that's really what it boils down to. And in that talk, what I was trying to convey to folks is that there are players in this market who you might not have ever thought of as healthcare providers who are going to be playing an outside role in who owns the patient. And so trying to bring that to urologists' attention, that heads up, like Best Buy is in the healthcare business. They're not just where you get your TVs anymore. Walmart, Dollar General, big players like Amazon, others you know about. But I think people, they're busy. They're taking care of folks. And you may pick your head up one day and just say, wait, I work for Amazon now. So trying to bring that to people's attention. Yeah, I appreciate that. And some things happen insidiously and some things happen quickly. You know, if you if we think about our field, the kind of solo practitioner or small group seems to largely have come and gone maybe over the last 20, 30 years or so. If we think about the proportion of people that are employed by hospitals and hospital systems, that seems to have increased. Private equity's role in healthcare has changed. More recently, telehealth with uh, the pandemic has been ushered in in a big way. So, you know, there's there's things that kind of happen. And I kind of, I assume that somebody who's, who was in the heyday in the 80s and 90s where people were printing money and doing whatever the heck they wanted, when they re- fast forward to 2010, we're just like, this is an unrecognizable style of medicine. Is that kind of what we're possibly talking about here? I think so. I think the evolution is underway. Maybe the revolution, depending on how dramatic you want to be. The insidious, perhaps, but I think now it's really accelerated. That if you think about how big the market is for healthcare spend, I think that's a good place to start. 
it's $4.5 trillion in spend for calendar year 22. Now, there's some things that are rolled into that that you may not attribute to healthcare spend all the time, but it's $4.5 trillion. It's a big number. It's the third largest economy on earth behind the United States and China. And so it's a huge number. And if you are in a capitalist marketplace, right, like we have here, and you're trying as a company to figure out what market you're going to grow into, a $4.5 trillion market is pretty enticing. And what's changed is that, you know, like you said, kind of the 80s, the heyday was very different, is that the technology has changed. The consumer appetite or the patient appetite, depending on how you look at it, for how they receive their healthcare has changed. Preferences are different. And some of that brought on, I think, in large part by COVID and what happened there. You mentioned telehealth. There are other things. That that confluence of circumstances has brought us to this place where if you're Amazon, Walmart, one of the insurance companies like United Health, for example, I mentioned Best Buy, others, you are going to look at look around, say, where can I invest my capital to get return? A $4.5 trillion market is pretty compelling, especially if preferences have changed in such a way that patients are willing to have their care done like maybe you and I, and certainly our parents would have never, ever thought that people would get their care done. Like the idea that you can pay $9 a month to Amazon and have unlimited telehealth healthcare services. What? Like no one would have ever envisioned that when they started selling books in 1997, that eventually they could be your healthcare provider. And that's, that's today. You can do that right now. We could sign up the three of us right now and get on with an Amazon provider for $9 a month. Insane. Totally. And we're, we're absolutely going to kind of dig into this. And as I was kind of thinking about and reflecting on this program, even over the course of our lives, things like internet, smartphones, accessibility of information has just exploded. I mean, AI, all of that. You know, once upon a time, you went to the doctor, you maybe had some tests done and they had a follow-up visit in a month or so. Like, I don't think many people were going to like check out their Encyclopedia Britannica and reading up on like X, Y, and Z. You just, the doctor had some knowledge that was exclusively available to them and you waited and you went to go hear that knowledge. You didn't really second guess it. Maybe got a second opinion if you're ultra sophisticated and, and you moved on. I feel like it's totally different now in that patients are super educated a tremendous amount of high quality information. And unfortunately, misinformation is available where I'm guessing like a reasonably intelligent, motivated person can like figure out a good bit of information with respect to what's going on with them, tag on the Sunshine Act, tag on some autonomy that came along with COVID. We're looking at it at a different model. And I think the old model was very doc centric. My mom, she's got varicose veins. And a buddy of mine was like, hey, here's the person that you want to see in their geography, kind of in the Southern Illinois. The logistics for her to get into a doctor called the PCP, who's not even going to make the referral until they have all the imaging and docs because they don't want to inconvenience the IR, multiple phone calls, the insurance, wait forever, take a day off work. It's absurd. It's beyond absurd. It's We're currently at eight weeks in and she still doesn't have a freaking appointment. And I mean, it's so... I'm sorry. That sounds terrible. 
It's crazy. It's totally crazy. And, you know, we're sitting here like, I'm like, mom, did you talk to your doc? And she's like, yeah, they're still waiting on, you know, this. I'm like, just tell them to see you anyways. And they can like get the freaking ultrasound. Like, anyways, it's crazy. There's room for improvement. No question about it. But we've gone from this doc centric vibe to, I don't know, Rich, you could tell me what your understanding of 21st century 2024 medicine is like from what your patients expect. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of really great points. So first of all, you know, we've talked a lot about how medicine was different back in the 80s. And I'd actually argue that now is the critical time for us as physicians to look back and reflect on the lessons we've learned based on where we were and how far we've come. And we need to apply those lessons to the evolution and the rapid growth that we're seeing now in healthcare. So I'll give you a couple examples. You know, in the 80s, it was incredibly doc-centric. It still is, as you've described. But you had the ability to bill for whatever service you're providing. There was not much oversight. There was not much measurement of the quality. And value certainly wasn't ever a thought back then. And then that was a problem. When a lot of the changes that have taken place since then are a direct effect of those issues. And doctors were ignoring them. We weren't paying attention. We were saying, listen, I got to go to work. I got to see Bill for my clinic visits, book my surgeries, and you just are a cog in the wheel, so to speak. And all of a sudden, you're seeing legislation, insurance companies, healthcare organizations really dictating how we practice. So when we see this pattern happening again, where private equity, huge corporations, major employers are now having a say in how we practice medicine, that tells me it's physicians' turn to stand up and say, listen, a lot of this change is needed. We need to iron out the inefficiencies in the system. But you know, I'm looking at it from an optimistic perspective in that now is our time as doctors to step out of the clinic room and think about how we can take an active role to shape the system. So, you know, CJ mentions this a lot. Who is the largest employer of doctors in America? You know, it's United Healthcare. And physicians who are part-time clinical, maybe full clinical, who will be working for these companies like Amazon, Best Buy, Dollar General, going to work at a clinic, at a minute clinic in Dollar General. There's a lot of opportunity there for us to say, yes, healthcare needs to change. We need to get access faster, higher quality care to the patient, but let's make sure we're preserving the doctor's perspective and let's make sure that the clinician really is at the forefront so that they can preserve that doctor-patient relationship. Because I think that's really sacred and we are seeing a lot of signs that it's deteriorating. You know, there's studies coming out looking at private equity and how although costs go down, quality deteriorates as well. I really hope that all of the doctors, not just urologists, hopefully all the physicians listening to this sort of take this as a call to action to ensure that, you know, we sort of step up and make sure that physicians are able to to mold the way this goes. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think you're you're spot on and I don't mean to sound like a cynic, but maybe even with like a job move, which I had within the last two years, you do appreciate your replaceability. I mean, I would say that there's maybe two to 5% of things that I do that are somewhat unique. And 
like, let's just cut out. Maybe people feel comfortable around me. Maybe that's important, but like actual like execution of medicine and surgery, I'm guessing there's not a ton of things that I do that are ultra, ultra unique. And I, I actually think that like some degree of acknowledgement, humility might not be the worst thing as we talk about value-based care and things along those lines. So I think, I think we framed the problem. We have, or the scenario, we have a huge huge multi-trillion dollar industry. I think anybody would say that there's tremendous inefficiency, maybe most accentuated academic medical systems. I've heard statistics that 80% of healthcare spending is actually not involved in healthcare. It's in the rest of the stuff. So now you have these like fairly ultra successful companies, Amazon, Walmart, Apple, Google, and maybe some some underdogs like Dollar General, and we can talk about some of these examples that have done a pretty good job with logistics, delivering a product, and why not healthcare? Didier, if I could just say something, because like I'll lose it if I don't. Your point about replaceability, fungibility, I think of it like commodification of what we do. It's such a, like you could do a deep dive on that, just that question. Is it, what do we want out of a rational healthcare system. Do we want our physicians to be irreplaceable or do we want them to be readily replaceable? And, and if your concern is like meeting the needs of your patients and your population, you want replaceability, you want efficiency, you want that. Like think about the Da Vinci robot in urology, the democratization of a high quality radical prostatectomy, right? Like, is it okay that for a long period of time, there were only so many hands that were great at that operation? Like, is that okay? Not okay. We need everyone to be great at that operation. We need every doctor to be phenomenal at what they do. And we need lots of them. And if the replaceability, I mean, it doesn't feel good to feel like you're replaceable. We are. We absolutely are. And maybe that's what we should be driving towards. How do we get towards more of that? That could be provocative, controversial statement, but that's how efficient markets work, is you move things <laughs> into commodity status. CJ, I think you are spot on, but I think a lot of people listening are going to recoil when they hear you say that. I think it is important that we get rid of the inefficiencies, but I think your statement's not inaccurate. We are in a market, healthcare's a market, patients are consumers. But physicians really nowadays feel like the field has just lost its purpose. And so that's why I think empowering physicians to maintain that art of medicine is still of utmost importance. But, you know, I just wanted to, you're not wrong, but I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to say, well, this is what's wrong with healthcare. So I'd sort of welcome you to counter me on that because I think it's important. I know you, I know your perspective, but I think everyone should hear it. Ruchi, it's, it's, I'm so glad you say that. And it was meant to be provocative, as I said. But so, so let me give you an example. Let's take airline pilots, okay? Do you want there only to be a handful of great airline pilots that can fly people safely around the country and everyone else gets like whatever shows up? right? Like, what do you want out of your airline pilot? Like, you want them all to be top-notch. I mean, everyone needs to be maverick. It doesn't diminish the significance and the importance of the work they do. Just because 
you're fungible, right? Just because you're replaceable doesn't mean your work isn't incredibly important. And I think that is the key distinction that I would make. And I'm glad that you pulled that out of me is that I'm not saying like, we don't have the most important job on earth. We may, I don't know. It's really important job what we do. Like to be there when people are at their most vulnerable and to like take them through an experience that could really just completely alter their life and to do it well, like, I don't know if there's any more important work anywhere. Like that's, that's incredible work and, and a privilege and an honor to do it. What I'm saying is, is we need a lot of people that can do it. And it can't just be me and you and Aditya. Like it can't just be us. Like it, there needs to be, we need to be swappable. You can just change us out. It's still the case that the work is incredible and rewarding and special, truly special and meaningful, but it's okay to have a high value commodity, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, CJ. And I want to make sure that because I've had a chance to listen to you, that this isn't, I'm not making too many assumptions about the audience's familiarity with this topic. So what I might ask you to do is kind of walk us through a thought experiment of next 5, 10, 15 years if we move to like a total high-value commodity, value-based, let's just call it impersonal model. So that, that'll be part A, if you could walk us through that. And then part B is kind of where along that spectrum we are, maybe using some examples of Amazon, Walmart, kind of what's actually happening. And then part C, the kumbaya element is going to be, how do we positively impact this for patients and providers? So for part A, the one way this could all go, and I'll quibble with your impersonal characterization of it. I, what I would say is there's nothing more personal than taking care of someone. The question to me is like, how efficient can you make that personal exchange. What you're going to see, like you would see in any market, by the way, I'm not an economist. So like I read a lot of newspapers. What you will see in any market is that there's always going to be a trend towards consolidation, right? Like you're, the market is trying to create efficiencies and remove inefficiencies, trying to kind of swerve around regulation and so forth to try to optimize itself. That's how like the market fundamentally works. And so that's why there's always a trend towards consolidation. Regulation eventually steps in in case there's monopolistic activity and kind of breaks things apart. And it just kind of does that. It like expands and it monopolizes. It's decentralized centralization. That's like the ebb and flow of the business cycle. There's no reason that that isn't going to happen in healthcare. That's already happening, right? And so you can think about the different kind of, forgive me for this expression, but like the units of production in healthcare, hospitals, physicians, labs, post-acute care provider, imaging, pharmacy, like pick all the big buckets, right? In a kind of inefficient market, those things are often separate, mom and pop, right? Market efficiency leads to vertical integration kind of drives market efficiency. So you take all those kind of different elements of the production line. And again, I know we as doctors don't love that, but just for this thought experiment, and you line them up vertically into a single unit then you've created some efficiencies in scale. And that that's what we're in the middle of right now. And I see that just continuing. So is there a world in the future where there's five major vertically integrated providers of care and everyone just gets basically assigned to those and they duke it out over market share? Like that's absolutely possible to me. And I think what, if you step back far enough from the system, what you're seeing is 
the jockeying to become one of those five? And where do people fit in? And in some spaces, it moves faster than others. It takes capital to vertically integrate. Right? So who vertically integrates? People who have capital. Who has capital? Right now, it's United Healthcare has, you look at their balance sheet, like most recent quarter, $40 billion in cash sitting around. Got to make that work for something. Why not buy 100,000 doctors? That's what they have done. And I'm sure there's more to come. And so there's going to be a continued integration of assets, horizontal integration, vertical integration. That's going to happen. People are going to integrate those assets. And what they're ultimately trying to do is control the patient, control that $4.5 trillion. And so you integrate all those assets, you bring in those dollars and patients under a single business unit, single business entity, and that's what the future could look like. And doctors are part of that integration. I would argue we are the most fundamental unit of that. We have the most key role. We are closest to the patient, but it doesn't mean that we won't get integrated. We can still be the bedrock of a very tall, vertically integrated business. And I I think that's where we're going. Now, I don't know where I am on the A, B, and C of what you described, but I, I think that is like what the next 5, 10, 15 years look like is continued vertical integration. You layer on value-based care because what that does is it creates the mechanism by which value that's generated, for example, by docs can flow back to them without them having to actually do something to a patient. So like, for example, when Ruchi decides not to take someone for a radical prostatectomy and instead to put them on active surveillance, she's created value for the health system that she won't ever see. She only sees the value when she submits a bill, but she created value. It's just not going to accrue to her. It's going to accrue to the entity that holds the premium dollar for that person's health insurance. And what value does is it allows her a value-based care arrangement. It allows her to see value in that decision of not doing something. And I think that's the magic of value-based care is that Every day, we as doctors make decisions that create value. If it's not a billable event, we don't see it. Value-based care allows you to generate value for yourself for all the decisions that you make. And I think that that's why it's so important. So you take this vertical integration idea. That's the how are we organized question. And then the how do we pay for all this stuff. That's the value arrangement question. Well, if we did it on a value arrangement, then we might be able to give people better access to the value they create. Hey, those are the things that are trying to come together right now. And it's in fits and starts, right? Like they're going to get it wrong. People are going to make bad bets. Theranos, like people make bad bets and organizations will come and organizations will go, but we will head in this direction unless the only thing that stops it is like some very significant legislative or regulatory change that basically says, we're not going to tolerate this market experiment anymore and we're going to move to something else. All right, I'm done. Let's let's chew on that for a little bit. CJ, I'll just add one thing to what you said, because I think it needs to be emphasized a bit. Incentives. I think that's the big driver here is behavioral incentives that will reward physicians for doing the right thing. Because historically, as you alluded to, incentives may not have been aligned with optimal outcomes or what is truly best for optimizing spend even, because that's a big concern for employers. So I I just want to add that little tidbit into, you know, your already excellent overview. I love that. So maybe like I'm going to share like what I would consider like a 
you can call it dystopian or utopian example of, I think, what we're kind of talking about. So a primary, let's just say they're still primary care physicians and they get a PSA test and it comes back as elevated. Then you have a brief video on PSA testing, pros and cons, kind of a spiel, maybe Dave Kane's well-prepped reflex PSA test. Here's some info for you. And you plug in your African-American ancestry, yes, no, family history of prostate, bladder, you know, endometrial ovarian, et cetera. And they say, okay, let's get you an MRI. And then that MRI shows something, again, maybe a little video, and then a clinical urologist who's targeting accuracy is excellent. And this data is available where they're, you know, 40% of pirates, three, 60% of fours and 90% of fives show up as cancer. They do a biopsy. You have cancer, maybe second video of here's your options. The patient likes for prostatectomy and Ruchiga has got the best outcomes for prostatectomy, continence, potency, and margin rates. She meets day of surgery, does the operation back to the PCP, PSA checks if something pops up, rinse and repeat. And maybe I'll contrast that to a extremely embellished PSA. You see Bogrodia. We, you know, we have to go through the whole process of having an appointment set up, talk to them about family history, pros and cons, share decision-making. Maybe, I don't typically do this. I get XODX tests just to kind of, you know, get a little bit of additional information. Then that leads to an MRI. Then that leads to a biopsy. Then they get germline testing to see if they're eligible for our Neptune trial. And then they get decipher testing to see if they're eligible for energy trials. Then they come to our multi-D clinic and be with a med or radonc and myself. Then they elect for surgery and we're there and we're a boatload more time and money in. So that's a embellished iteration, but it's not like ridiculous. So maybe option A is like, Amazon, Google, we have a real good understanding of how this kind of works. We can make a very consumer-centric product that's easy. I mean, this whole process could take 25, 30 minutes, two hours. We can commodify that. We can give you high-value care with an excellent prostatectomist at the end of the day versus somebody, and maybe just to go down this rabbit hole, labs that pack you four hours here, Here's the Bagrodia special that I kind of like versus like, you know, your heart rate's fine at six hours post-op, get out of here. So maybe that's like what I'm thinking about is like we have these behemoth people that are good at big data, logistics, consumerism, data-driven, and then we have like the way we do things. So that's A, an example in my brain. And then maybe B is like, does something along these lines exist with Amazon, Walmart, Best Buy, Dollar General, CVS, Aetna, Walgreens. And maybe you can just share a little bit about that. Your question when you started, dystopian or utopian, I love that. Great framing, great question. Many elements of utopia to me, some elements of dystopia. And what I'll say is for myself, I, I'm an evangelist for efficiency. I'm an evangelist for value. And I'm an evangelist for the patient experience. I think all those things line up. And if what you're doing is driving a patient experience that's exceptional and delivers high outcomes, high value outcomes, I'm all for that. My caveat and my concern on, is there a dystopian element, is that even with all that efficiency, I still believe there is, there's something sacred about the interaction between the patient and their physician, heart stop. Like I believe that. It's what makes our work really special. So I, I'm okay with creating 
an extremely efficient arrangement. In fact, that's what I'm trying to do. Like that's what I'm that's what I want us to do. But I'm doing that while preserving the most important parts of B. And there are some really important parts of B that we cannot leave behind. And I think this is the Ruchi said, what's the call to action? Like we are moving to A. We're moving to efficiency. We have to. Have to. Like, why would you want an irrational, inefficient system if you care about people you're taking care of? You wouldn't want that. So we're gonna move to A. But if we're not in the game, if we're not at the table, people don't understand that sacred relationship. Unless you've been there, you don't understand it. And so we have to be present. Now, is everyone have to make it like a big part of their their life, every doctor? Like, I don't think that's feasible, right? Like that's why we have leadership structures and organizations that represent us as a collective. But I do not think we should be running away from A. We should be running towards it and we should be putting our fingerprints on it and making it happen the right way. I'll leave it there. So Richard, let me ask you to maybe share some, not to like put you on the spot, some like examples of how we've gone from ultra doc, this is the way I do it, to something closer to a big box driven model. Perhaps you could just talk a little bit about some of the arrangements that are out there. You know, United Healthcare has come up, Amazon, Walmart, like kind of just give us a, give the listenership a sense of, you know, where we are along this, along this journey. Yeah, happy to. Well, I'll start by saying that employers provide the majority of health insurance for Americans. The majority of Americans opt for employer-based plans. So they are the ones who have the most skin in the game, so to speak. They're the ones fronting a lot of this. So they are highly incentivized to keep costs down, obviously, but more importantly, keep their workforce healthy and have them at work, right? So if somebody has intermediate risk prostate cancer, you would think like, why would this patient's employer care at all about whether they're going for bundle A or uh, I should say option A or option B. Well, they want option A because that patient goes home that same day, one step closer to getting back to work. We don't check the unnecessary labs that that employer is fronting. We don't find the borderline hyperkalemia that was clinically insignificant. I mean, hyperkalemia is probably not a good option. I should use another electrolyte, but you know what I mean. The, the insignificant thing that's then going to keep them in the hospital for another two days to trend a lab. Or, so it all adds up. And the reason I'm giving you this background and trying to frame it in the context of, well, who really cares about this? I mean, it's the employers in this country who have the most skin in the game. So the reason I'm going down this path is because a lot of the innovation that we're seeing specifically here at Vanderbilt, shameless plug for CJ and I, <laughs> but a lot of those innovative arrangements occur with health systems or large healthcare corporations directly to employers. So a really good example of a value-based arrangement is what Vanderbilt is doing with their bundles program. Essentially, they are selling direct-to-employer bundles in which an entire episode of care is in ideal state. I'm going to keep it simple here for the audience. In an ideal state, it's billed under one price. All care is included that is associated with that episode or that diagnosis. And so that incentivizes Vanderbilt to keep costs low and to optimize quality. 
And then that also brings in volume for the health system. And it fits that employer's need of wanting to keep costs down, bringing the patients back to work, ensuring a healthy workforce. That's one really simple model. A lot of other companies, including here in Nashville, because, you know, believe it or not, Nashville is really the biggest healthcare tech hub, or I should say startup hub in the country. There are so many companies here that are working directly with small groups who may or may not have vertically integrated or been acquired. And they're bringing these value arrangements directly to those physicians who may work for smaller groups who don't have the capital to invest in all of these value-based care technologies or whatnot. And so a lot of that is happening where, you know, I'll give you an example of a company I know that's doing this. They contract with Walmart. Walmart could be a self-insured employer, and they're really incentivized to keep their costs low because they're not going through Aetna, Humana, whatnot, United. They're going to cover it directly. And so they talk to this company, and this company can perhaps provide a network of really high-quality clinicians who they know keep costs low, follow certain care pathways, don't have a lot of variation because variation in care is inefficient. And a former urologist here at Vanderbilt, Matt Resnick, is chief medical officer of one of these companies in Bolt Health. They're doing a lot of work in this space. So that's just those are just two major examples of things happening here. But I think the examples can go on and on. And most importantly, we will be seeing this in the future. It's evolving and there's a lot of exciting stuff happening here. So, you know, we'll see how it continues to change. Thanks for sharing those examples. And, you know, I think in some ways it's somewhat straightforward. We have these larger corporations with huge, huge, deep, deep pockets that are excellent at consumerism, excellent at logistics, creating, uh, commodifying everything. And on the one hand, it's scary, but of course, on the other hand, it's an opportunity. We've kind of talked about this utopia, dystopia element of it, but maybe some nuts and bolts, like what can we do to make sure that we're at the table and not on the menu as it stands? And I think your work in advocacy, your work in drug costs, you know, it's all separate, but related, like intimately related. So, you know, when you when you learn about this, you're you're an expert in this. How are you like, I'm going to impact this so it's positive for patients and it's positive for providers? Yeah, I think you bring up some really good examples about how my specific work is not necessarily all in the same bucket, but I would definitely say all intertwined. And the common theme there is ensuring the physician's voice is at the table. And I think it's an exciting time for physicians who perhaps have an interest in some of this other work because there are a lot of job opportunities out there right now. Again, I mentioned Nashville being a hub for this sort of stuff. There are a ton of physicians in this area who are part-time clinical in a physician's office seeing patients who then spend some of their time either directly working for these companies, these value-based, value-focused healthcare startups, but also within your larger organizations. Our health systems now see the value in having a medical professional at the forefront of understanding some of these otherwise more business-oriented things. They see that there is clinical nuance 
And if you don't take that clinical nuance into account prior to making financial decisions, oftentimes things fall apart. We've talked about that. Not every healthcare venture has been successful. A couple of years ago, I think it was JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, they tried to come up with a healthcare arm that we haven't heard anything more about. It did not take off. There are other large corporations who have tried to get in this space and who have not been successful. And, you know, I think that there's opportunity here for ensuring that physicians have a voice. So I'd certainly encourage any urologists or surgeons or any doctor, actually, for that matter, who may have an interest in the business side of medicine, in value-based care, in oh, we talked about private equity, like private equity certainly is not going to throw a billion dollars into acquiring a group without at least having some content matter expert weigh in. And, and that ideally is a physician. So I, I'd certainly definitely encourage people to pursue some of those paths. I think that's incredibly valuable. And first off, I do think that these are going to be large things. There's going to be associated legislature and to really have a, a voice and a seat at the table, we, we've got to vote, we've got to contribute, we've got to understand the issues and be engaged, not sit back and let the ship sail, waving goodbye. The second thing, when I think about what kind of coming, maybe what's kind of happening, recurrent themes to me are a consumer-centric experience and an efficient experience. And while there's the kind of macro I think the micro that we can literally impact on a day-to-day is optimizing those simple things, being on time, trying to be available, recognizing that they may interface a bit with work-life balance. I mean, Sunshine Act, my chart, all of this, people expect things to be attended to like yesterday. So it's a bit tricky, but I still think there's ways to be sensitive to the patient, put yourself in their shoes, maybe step off the pedestal a bit. And I think that could, that could help. The efficiency, I think that's also something that we can really think about what we're doing. You know, one example is just the five folks here that do prostatectomy. We kind of engage in a bit of a horse trading exercise, but came up with a single robotic prostatectomy preference card, getting rid of the fluff, getting rid of the excesses. And it was, it's way easier for the OR staff and so forth. It's cost efficient. So I think these things are are doable to, to kind of standardize things a bit. And then the third thing is to try to track your metrics. Because when we're talking about value-based care at the end of the day, you're either going to say, here's how I do, or somebody's going to figure out, here's how you do, or somebody's going to tell you what's important for your patients and the diseases that you treat and you're expert in. So I think the sooner we get on on board with this in a, in a meaningful way, the better. And again, these are things that you and I can start doing if you aren't already later today, if not tomorrow. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And tracking one's metrics are essentially the crux of determining the quality of care that's being provided. And that is exactly what Medicare and Medicaid and insurance companies are going to be looking at because they want to make sure that folks are getting high quality care with the best possible outcomes. And often cost does play a role in that. But I think recognizing perhaps those variations, like you just addressed, like different equipment for the same surgery, 
different workflows in the clinic setting. If a urologist is able to recognize those patterns that perhaps create inefficiencies and address them internally, it just keeps all of these other entities out of the picture and control remains within physicians. The other thing I'll mention is the onus is also on our employers, for those of us who are employed physicians, to recognize the balancing act here. You're right. We need to optimize the patient experience. We need to understand patient priorities because they're not the same as our priorities or the health system's priorities. But I would challenge all of our health systems to think about how that may impact the physician when results go out immediately before anyone has had an opportunity to review them. And perhaps, you know, you and I are still in the operating room and there's been seven messages to our clinic nurses about this prostate biopsy path that came back an hour and a half ago. It's hard. And, you know, as long as our health systems try to take an active role in ensuring that their workforce has satisfaction, that physicians are able to do a good job without getting burnt out while still keeping what the patient wants as a central focus, I think that we'll be able to iron out a lot of these pain points and hopefully create efficiency and value and optimize outcomes ourselves to some degree. I love that, Ruchka. Typically, I ask people to kind of summarize how they feel on a certain topic towards the end of the show. But I think you really, you captured it very comprehensively and eloquently that this is ours and it's ours to hold on to dearly for the reason that we went into medicine or it's ours to passively relinquish. And we we do need to be engaged. It's an opportunity for good. I don't think we have to see it as a threat. We can think of it as an opportunity. Absolutely. CJ, I know we're coming on an hour. I want to be respectful of your time, but just some kind of parting thoughts to the listenership as, as we conclude. You know, I give a lot of talks around the country on this topic. And the thing I worry about is that people walk away feeling pessimistic, not optimistic. And I I don't think I don't think there's anything to be pessimistic about. I think the future is very bright. It's different. It is absolutely going to be different, but that's okay. We don't ride horses and buggies and train is not the main way we get across the country anymore. Like Progress is fine, and we shouldn't be afraid of that. There is going to be a different future for us, but it doesn't change the fact that we can have control over that future. I believe we can. I absolutely believe that. I also believe that the most important parts of what brings us to medicine can be preserved. And for all the talk of efficiency and high value and integration and for all of that and disruption, it doesn't change the fundamental work that we have to do as doctors. And that, I think, will always be there. And it makes our role always key to this movement and this progress. So I I would just ask your listeners, like, don't be despondent. There's a future ahead of us that's different, but it is great. And we can have a say in it. And, and I think that we have to have a say in it. Otherwise, the patients, they won't want what's coming. They'll want what we used to have. Thank you. Thank you, CJ. And really happy to have some urologists that have gain content expertise and, and passion for this really important topic. Well, awesome. Congrats on the work that you and CJ are doing over there. It's exciting. I love it. I, I learn so much every time I interface with it. Hopefully the listenership gathers something useful from this conversation today. 
So let's maybe we'll we'll pencil in another podcast in a, at a two year clip just to kind of see where we've been and where we're going. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure we'll look around and be like, oh, all right, Amazon is paying me. It's time for my two o'clock telehealth. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate the invite. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.